Lord's holy name we pray everybody pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for um, things, even like the changing of the seasons. That um, uh, Though it's been warm the last few weeks, uh, this past week it's turned cold, and uh, the seasons are, are regular because you have ordered the world and that uh, you display your wisdom and your goodness and your providential care in all things that you do. Truly, the heavens and earth declare your glory. Lord, and we thank you that you haven't just uh, spoken to us by the works of nature, but that you have given us your very word, um, both incarnate and the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, but then uh, inscripturated um, the words of uh, your servants, the prophets, uh, written down the words of your servants, the apostles, uh, entrusted uh, for all time uh, to uh, your faithful people. And so we pray that uh, we would uh, use these things to our benefit, that we would be uh, people of the book, not just because we carry it around, but because uh, we depend on it to, um, to learn about you and to learn about ourselves and the world as it truly is. So we do pray this morning that you would give us your spirit to use that word to guide us into all truth, uh, concerning uh, your gospel, the good news of your sending your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, help us to be um, a people of faith, not trusting in ourselves, or not trusting in um, outward performance or rote formalism, but um, with hearts that uh, long to see your will be done, that long to glorify uh, our God. Uh, Make us that people, we pray, by the transforming power of your word, even as we study it together this morning. Amen. All right, well, good morning, everyone, and hopefully we'll have others as lunches get ready and <laughs> uh, make their way in. But uh, if you'll turn with me uh, in your Bibles to we're in the book of Romans. Um, last week, we were looking at chapter 2, and we'll... We'll start today at the very end of chapter 2, but we'll primarily be concentrating on verses 1 through 20 of chapter 3, but we'll see there's this kind of thematic link regarding circumcision at the end of chapter 2, and that's how chapter 3 begins. So we'll start there at the end of chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me just, um, and for those of you who haven't been with us, let me uh, just give you a, a brief glimpse of where we are in the book of Romans. So we're in the first major discourse section of the book of Romans. So after the introduction and then after Paul introduces the book's main theme um, for uh, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 17, um, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So after making that declaration, Paul then goes into his first main discourse, which um, the point of which uh, we, we hit in our passage today, um, chapter 3, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul has been making this long argument about the universality 
of human sinfulness. And he started um, at the end of chapter 1 by describing what we might call the outwardly sinful. Um, those who um, make no claim um, to, to outward claim to following God, um, but can't de deny that they know God um, because God has clearly revealed himself um, through uh, his creation uh, in a way that holds all people uh, responsible for their actions. And people, rather than trusting and looking for that God, have instead created uh, idols. And out of this idolatry has flowed uh, immorality of all kinds. So chapter 1, um, the, Paul is describing the, the universality of sinfulness through describing the openly outward sinful person. Um, in chapter 2, he switches. In chapter 2, um, and as uh, Tim rightly said uh, <laughs> um, last week, um, you know, chapter 2 in one sense, like, why does he, like, chapter 1 covered everybody? <laughs> um, but um, chapter 2, he, uh, even though chapter 1 was kind of sufficient to describe the universality of sinfulness, not everyone thinks of themselves in that way. And so chapter 2, Paul um, turned to the person who is outwardly self-righteous. So he mo moves from those who are openly sinful to those who are judging others and viewing themselves as um, superior on this uh, moralistic hierarchy, um, and even though they themselves, as Paul says, do the same things. So they're judging others when they themselves are sinners too, and they too are under God's right judgment. And as we talked about last week, part of what Paul is doing in chapter 2 is that, that God's justice is equitable. He judges both the Jew and the Greek by the same standard, a, a perfect life of, of works uh, under the law. And um, so Jews and Greeks uh, uh, alike are condemned. Um, so um, this expose of human sinfulness uh, both condemns the outward sinner, but also the outwardly self-righteous person. Um, and so we come uh, to the end of chapter 2, and, and this, um, with the switch from the law to circumcision, Paul um, is, is uh, kind of addressing still the same self-righteous category, but a self-righteousness that we might say comes through religious formalism, um, you know, outward appearance. Um, so uh, let me get, begin our reading uh, in chapter 2, verse 25, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 20. For circumcision in, indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderlessly charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Uh, may he bless it as we talk of it this morning. So uh, let's start with this, this idea. Um, and I want to start with the question that um, Paul asked uh, at the beginning of chapter 3. What is the value of circumcision? So at the end of chapter 2 and at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is considering uh, this question. What is the value of of circumcision. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's an outward sign. Um, that that an outward sign that demonstrates um, or you know that you are under that pledge and responsibility as part of this covenant people of God. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, I think Tim Keller um, uh, is right when he says, you know, for Christians to, um, to maybe get the impact of these verses, let's replace circumcision, the word circumcision there with baptism. And we would be in danger the same kind of danger that Paul is describing here of trusting and circumcised, like, you know, in that the attitude he's condemning here is, I'm circumcised, I, I have the outward sign, so therefore I'm good. Um, and, and we see the same kind of attitude, I think, in churches. Well, I was baptized, 
Um, and so, therefore, you know, I'm, I'm in. Uh, I've received the, the outward sign. So Tim Keller, I think, would, would I don't think, I know, <laughs> Tim Keller would say, yes, like, we can, you know, substitute baptism here for, for circumcision to help us get the impact of what he's saying to his audience, that you can't, because you received the outward sign, you can't trust in that outward sign alone. The outward sign is not sufficient. Good. What else does Paul teach us about circumcision here? Yeah, Kathy. Yeah, it's a matter of the heart. It's the what's inside. Um, it's it's the relational position um, that matters. You know, it's not the outside um, sign and seal. It's what inward ma uh, matters. Um, so I when I was thinking about that exact um, summary of this, it made me think of a bakery story. I know y'all rolling your eyes. It's great. Another bakery story. Um, once I uh, showed up for um, my night shift, and there was a huge commotion around the bun oven. So I, I got up there, and it turned out earlier in the day, the bun oven kind of had a, I imagine, I don't know what exactly it looked like, but it kind of a Ferris wheel. So the buns went in, and then the oven kind of baked them as they made their journey through the oven. And they came out through the same entrance. So. Like, so somehow, I don't know if it's a circle or an S-curve or somehow, the, the buns are, you know, making a trip. I, I always imagined the buns were having fun. Um, but uh, so a pan had gotten wedged in there. Um, and so what, and when that happened, what you usually did was, you know, reverse it and, you know, bring it back out to remove the pan that wouldn't go forward. Um, in this case, the pan got wedged in such a way that the oven would go neither forward or backwards, which meant that the only way to get the pan out was someone had to crawl in the oven and remove it, which obviously, it's an oven, so they had to wait um, until it cooled off enough till the guy could put on the silver suit, crawl in the oven, pull out the wedge pan, and the buns come out. So, um, I, and I was fascinated by this. I kept checking in, I, you know, like, on my breaks, I'd walk by to see what's happening. So I happened to be coming by the oven when they had finally got it moving again. And the buns had been in there eight hours or something like that. And so they were perfect charcoal. I mean, black through and through. And being the person I am, I gathered up eight of these charcoal buns, went over to the bun bagging machine, and because I knew how to use it, I bagged eight charcoal buns it had the official stamp of fresh until <laughs> and the official seal on the outside of the package. From outward appearance, it was a perfectly, perfectly packaged bag of buns. I took them home, put them on the table, went to bed. <laughs> uh, around lunchtime, I heard my mother scream <laughs> when she opened the bag of buns. And the outward appearance <laughs> betrayed what the inward reality was. Uh, instead of having eight perfectly baked fresh buns uh, straight from the bakery home, she had eight chunks of charcoal, and I had a good uh, laugh at my mother's expense. Um, but that's, you know, like, that's the idea. Like, those buns had the outward sign, they had the outward seal, but 
It's what inside is what mattered. Um, they were no good, even though they had all the external packaging, they were no good because the heart was rotten. Um, it, it's, and so that's what Paul is saying here, that the value of circumcision doesn't uh, involve just in the formal possession of the outward sign, but has this inward requirement of a believing heart. Good. Anything else to say about circumcision before we move on a little bit? Yes, Scott. Absolutely. Yeah, there's an absolute, there is an advantage. And that's what Paul is, and I'm glad you raised that because that helps us get into kind of move from the end of chapter 2, his point he's making at the end of chapter 2 to the point he's making at the beginning of chapter 3, that there is, that doesn't mean that circumcision, just because circumcision as an outward sign um, is meaningless if it doesn't have the inward reality behind it, that doesn't mean circumcision is valueless. Um, it doesn't mean that circumcision is without its benefit or advantage, as the word that Paul uses. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? There is a real advantage there. Um, and just because, uh, and, and we can see this as Paul works through these kind of, he, he gives us this rapid series of questions and, and really short answers. Um, some people describe this as one of the hardest sections in Romans to understand just because it's so compact and, and terse and it's boom, 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 question, answer, question, answer. Um, but, uh, you know, as we think about the big point of it, he, he's, he's wrestling with this idea of what advantage has the Jew. And he says they have great advantage. Um, it, the point is that they're advantaged, but their advantage is, um, is pointless unless it's, it's taken use of. It's like the tortoise and the hare. The hare has the advantage in a foot race. But if the hare lays down and takes a nap, <laughs> then the advantage is, is worthless. Um, and it's that, that idea, like having the law is of a great benefit. But if you don't follow it, the benefit's not there. Circumcision is a great outward sign that God has made a pledge for, to be your God and for you to be his people but if you disobey the commands of God, then the, the outward sign is, is, is meaningless. The advantage is, becomes, in a sense, a disadvantage um, because you've not taken um, or made use of what God has given you. So what else strikes you from this like 
rapid series of questions in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. What, what's Paul um, getting at here? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, that again, God is is looking on the heart. Um, it, you know, a person is a Jew inwardly, not outwardly. Um, it's a, a matter of the heart, a circumcision of the heart, of the spirit, not by the externals. Is a person to be be um, uh, assessed, but God assesses the heart, um, and this rules out rote performance. Um, like, you know, going through the motions, um, but at the, you know, inwardly being a rebel and shaking your fist at God. Like, God is judging the heart. Yeah, and, and even Jesus in that example, like, says, because he says, no, you don't have to come to my house, like, you know, just give your word, and, you know, um, and, it, it, and it's done. Um, and, and the idea, Jesus responds, like, I haven't seen this kind of faith in, in Israel. Like, you know, <laughs> somebody who just trusts me to, you know, do a miracle from uh, over distance, and Wow. Um, so yeah, that again, it's it's assessing the faith, the trust, and and there's a word play um, in um, in verse two. Um, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? And the idea is they were entrusted, but they did not trust. Like the the word there has the same root, so like you know, to kind of catch the rate. You know, like, so they are entrusted with the word of God, but the problem is they did not trust in God. And, and, and this is getting at, does their lack of trust nullify what God has said he would do? And it goes back to Scott's point. The, the advantage is still there. Like, um, the benefits are still there to be, to be received. Um, but their faithlessness doesn't undo God's faithfulness to them um, because, you know, the, the, the promise was and is real, and it's, and it's there. The oracles of God were true that they received, and they had great advantage of possessing things. Like, I mean, uh, it's like a couple of places from the Old Testament, uh, for example, um, uh, Deuteronomy 4.8, what great nation is there that has statutes and rules 
so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Or Psalm 147, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Right? So this idea, like the, the, the blessings of God to the Jewish people, the advantages that he's given them, the promises he's made in his word to them are real. Um, but rather than responding in faith to what has been entrusted to them, he, Paul is saying they're, they're judged because of their unbelieving hearts. Possessing the law, possessing circumcision, possessing the outward aspects of Jewishness are meaningless unless one possesses the inner heart of faith. No, you're absolutely right. And, and this whole chapter that we're looking at, chapter 3, 1 through 20, is jam-packed with biblical quotations, Old Testament quotations. I, I mean, when we get to verses, um, the second half of verse 10 through verse 18, that's the longest quotation um, of the Old Testament that Paul makes anywhere, and he jams together six different um, six different passages. So he's not just quoting one long passage there. He's quoting six different texts to help establish this principle of the universality of sin and the, the coming of judgment of God against that sin, whether a person is, is, is Gentile or a Jew. Like the judgment of God against the sinfulness of man is real. And all those advantages that the Jews possess are, you know, uh, are useless if they fail to do the things that God has commanded them to do. Um, it's like the idea, I was thinking like advantages, um, like um, I got a flight later today, so I guess airplanes are on my mind. And I was thinking, like, I've never flown first class, but, but you think first class has its advantages, like, you know, more leg room, or, you know, you get to board first, you get to leave first, more room, I presume better food, but, but it's an airplane, so it can't be that much better, can it? <laughs> Maybe some of you flown first class could tell me, oh, yes, it is, um, you know. Um, but, but, you know, the advantages, if the plane... Are, are useless if the plane is plummeting nose down at 30,000, <laughs> from 30,000 feet. Like, you know, um, in the end, in, in this final judgment, assessment of people, the advantaged and the disadvantaged, the Jew and the Gentile, are being judged by the same righteous standard of God. They're being judged equally. And, and if those Jews have not taken use of the advantages God has given them by, by believing, by trusting him, by having circumcised hearts as well as circumcised flesh, then their advantages are, are of no advantage. 
Yeah, it's like, um, and uh, you know, uh, we we like we forget like how amazing God's word is because in some sense we're so used to it. Um, and the way I like um, an example of this uh, on an RUF promotional video, they had testimony from this kid from Vermont. So you know. Um, coming from a society that used to be Christian, but it's not anymore. And this kid was weeping because, you know, he had gone to this RUF meeting and heard John 3.16. Like, you know, John's 3.16, like, you know, that's the guy holding the sign with the rainbow wig on his head at every football game I've gone to my entire life, like, or, or watched on television, like, um, like, you know, it, it's been, and this was new to him. Like, and he was weeping because, like, he, you know, was hearing that message, for God so loved the world. And, and you know, it blew his mind. And, like, you know, we're like, oh, yeah, John 3.16. Um, and and it, there is this kind of, as we think about this, you know, um, there is a danger to possessing the externals if we don't take advantage of them. Um, you know, um, they're, uh, like, it's the, the inward part uh, that really matters. Um, I love how Jonathan Edwards um, talks about, like, one way to think of this um, is to, to add a sense, um, and, and, he, and, and he does this, like, so there's this way that um, Edwards was influenced by the Enlightenment, and it's um, uh, teaching that um, you know, knowledge comes through senses, but Edward says we have a spiritual sense um, that's given to us by God. Um, so he, he gives the example of honey. Like you can know all about honey. Like you can know uh, how it's how the bees make it. Um, you know what its consistency is, its viscosity, its you know hardening point. Uh, the level of sweetness in it. Um, but as Edward says, you can know all that stuff, but you don't know honey unless you've tasted it. And it's that same, like, we can know all about the Bible. We can come in this room uh, week after week, um, but we can know maybe a lot more about God, but all of that is pointless if we don't know God, um, if we don't enter into relationship with that God, if our hearts remain cold and different and uh, untrusting toward that God. So, um, as Brian's saying, like, you know, as we think of these verses and the application for us, like, you know, there is a way that we fall into the exact same danger he's describing of, of the Jews, um, and we are in danger of trusting in the advantages, the blessings that God has given us and not trusting in him. And therefore, those blessings end up becoming a curse to us rather than doing us any good um, because it's not having these things. Um, it's, it's using those things to uh, trust, to believe, to, to um, have lives of faith in relationship to God. Um, okay, good. Let's um, switch a little to the. Oh, sorry. Uh, 
Um, because the experience, um, the experience has to be built on propositions. Like, so that's, I mean, that's my, like, um, the spirit works with and in accordance with the word of God. Um, like, it's not bringing us new news. It's taking, as Kathy said, like, Paul's not saying anything new here about the dangers of religious formalism or the need to have a circumcised heart. Um, it's, that is rooted in the propositions. Um, what's needed is the work of the Spirit to take what God has said propositionally and to, to make it real to us. And that's what Edwards, you know, um, he, he had a lot to say um, about the, the combination because Edwards of his day um, that was, like, he was the experimental religion person, but he's also, like, written more propositions than I will ever be able to read or comprehend <laughs> in my lifetime, and I'm already older than he was um, when he died. <laughs> um, so that, that race, is, I think, is lost. Um, so, like, the two go to, like, you can't separate them. Um, the word and the spirit go goes together, and as Jesus says concerning the Spirit, the, the Spirit will guide us into all matters concerning himself. It's the Spirit taking the, the propositional word and working it in our hearts. Um, because, um, uh, like, yeah, just like having an outward experience, um, you know, it can be a, a kind of religious formalism as well. Like, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to, like, being, um, like, crit critics of Edwards during the First Great Awakening, um, you know, people had, you know, bodily responses to the gospel. So people were falling on the floor, crying out, screaming in response, um, in a lot of ways that um, modern Pentecostals actually look to Edwards and sort of see, hey, there we are. Um, but, but Edwards, you know, said, it's, it's not that you feel something and you fall on the floor, like, you know, you can have an experience that is momentary and fleeting. That experience is useless if it's not grounded in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, grounded in the word of God, um, and being used for God's glory and purposes. All right, well, um, um, well, Edward said it, not me. <laughs> um, uh, so let's uh, look at this um, in our last little bit here as Paul brings his, his long argument. Again, he started this back in chapter 1, verse 18, and he's now coming to this crescendo that he starts with, um, with these verses. Um, and, and notice he... he, he he almost like seems to contradict himself like in verse 1 of chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Um, and then verse 9. What then? Are Jews better off? No. <laughs> Wait. Are they advantaged? <laughs> are they not advantaged? Um, they're not better off because both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And then he goes into this litany um, of Old Testament verses, six, at least six 
um, distinct passages here. So, um, so yeah, what is Paul, what's the main message um, that's coming through these Old Testament quotations that Paul is, is, is presenting for you in this long quotation? And again, this is the longest Old Testament direct quotation uh, in all of Paul's epistles. Uh, so what's the, the main point um, from the text he's um, assembled together here? Yeah, Teresa. Yeah, that God is the righteous judge. And, and the, the Jews were the people of God, but their faithlessness didn't render God faithless. It rendered or make his promises devoid or, and null. No, God demonstrates he's faithful by exercising the judgment that he said. He's true to his word. He's, he told his people in his word, you do this, this happens. They did this. Like, God is faithful in enacting judgment. And as he lists these Old Testament verses here, he's, he's nailing this, this point home. Like, everyone is, is unrighteous. No one does good. No one seeks after God. Um, we're all selfish, um, slanderous, uh, quick to feet quick to do evil, uh, people uh, unless God does a work in us. Um, so as he, as he makes this assessment, Jews and Greeks alike are sinful and both are in need of this external righteousness that comes from God. Yeah, Bill. <laughs> you people <laughs> that's real easy to say <laughs> uh, you know it's um, uh, it's it's uh, like um, Mr. Costanza on Seinfeld when he invents his fake holiday Festivus you know like the airing of grievances I've got a lot of things to say against you people <laughs> um, and, and that is this so that's the attitude of our hearts, and we need that, that mirror to, to, you know, to expose our sinfulness. And, that, and here, as we think of this, the Old Testament is, is God's word, is God's mirror to his people. And Paul is holding it up and saying, look what the scriptures says. And he catalogs, like in this quick, rapid fashion, these passages that talk about the the universality of human sinfulness.
Yeah. Yeah, and and it <laughs> it's like you know when when God's confrontation with Job, like you know Job has been pleading, I I want God here now. I've got some things to say for God, and then God shows up, and He doesn't address Job's questions. He He shows Himself to Job and describes who He is, and Job is like, okay, <laughs> like it's. You know, and, and it's that, that idea, like, um, it, it's easy for us to excuse our sinfulness or to think, well, I'm not as bad as somebody else. But when you come into the presence of the glorious God and, and that glorious God's presence exposes how filthy we are. Um, uh, I use this analogy all the time. Um, of that I steal from somebody else, um, like it's like we're houses made out of glass, and we think the house is is perfectly clean until God's light shines on it, and all of a sudden you see how filthy, dirty it is when it's brought to light. And the Christian life, the same author went on to say, the the more you clean the window, or the windows get clean, um, the more you're you're sanctified the dirtier it is, <laughs> you see, because the more light comes in, the more the presence of God shines into your life, you're finding more and more. It's like, you know, sometimes I vacuum and I don't turn the lights on in my house, and I think I did a good job, and then, like, sun comes in through the window the next day, and it's like, man, I, I did horribly. <laughs> like, you know, and, um, or I've been taking advantage of my son's absence to to do work in his room and like so patching a crack in the wall and so I think I've sanded like I've I sand it and I look at it with an external eye and I think oh yeah that's pretty good then I go get my big um, you know bright work light and I shine on it and you see every ripple and 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 seam and grain that I didn't sand. And it's that kind of idea. As God confronts us with his word and with his presence, and we start to, to see just how sinful we are. Um, but uh, unless he does that, as Bill said, like we, we just we see it in other people, but we never see it in ourselves. Like we need to be exposed by God, to our sinfulness. And once we get there, and again, to put this passage or this opening discourse in its place, uh, he, he needs us to be in that place so we can see truly what a great gift God is giving us by this righteousness, this perfect righteousness that we have by faith. Um, but before we get there, we need to get rid of our sense of self-righteousness. We need to get rid of our um, unbelieving hearts. We need to, to see, like Paul does, everything I have is filthy rags. It's all rubbish. It's all trash when compared to the righteousness 
that comes through faith. Good. Other things that strike you about these um, passages? Yeah, Brian. Yep, and and it's this idea that 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 you know God's judgment against all unrighteousness of the flesh is is just and it's good. And as we'll come back to later, he'll come back to this idea like. Well, does that mean we should go out and sin so grace can abound even more? And it's like, no, <laughs> people. <laughs> I think it's good to remember that in Genesis, after God created man and woman, he said everything was very good. You know, so, but then the fall came and put us in quite the mess. Yeah, it's this, this you know, uh, Yeah, and that's where he started in chapter 1. And he starts with that idea, like, we take God's good creation and put it to evil purposes. And that, that's true of both the outward sinner who, you know, is, is rejecting God, as well as the outwardly religious person who s claims to be following God, but, but still is is doing the same things that that irreligious person was doing. The person who doesn't possess God's special revelation is under the same judgment of the person who does possess it. And in the end, we're all falling short. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Like, if, if we're trusting in the works of our hands, if we're trusting in a righteousness of our own, in the end, <laughs> we're all going to fall short. It's like the uh, analogy I used the other day, like of trying to swim across the Pacific. Like the person who can't swim is going to drown. Um, the person who can swim is going to get a little farther, but in the end is going to drown. You know, the, the, the Olympic swimmer is going to get farther than me and then he's going to drown. And then the long-distance swimmer is going to get farther than anybody, maybe 50 miles, or, or these people that swim, like, from Cuba to the United States or across the English Channel. Um, you know, those are the greatest swimmers on Earth. Can they swim across the Pacific? No. So it's like this idea of we're all falling short, and no matter who has more works than another person, um, you know, when held account by the Almighty God, we're all falling short of the standard that he requires. So we're, we're, we should be at this point without hope. He's setting us up, you know, for verse 21. But now, and again, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones can preach sermons on just the word but. <laughs> you know, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the bad news, all have sinned and fallen short of, of, of God, is a necessary um, component of the good news that there is a righteousness of God that we can access through faith. Yeah, John. Yeah, it, it needs, we need to have our, our eyes open. Um, and it's, it's the way, like, I, I often tell people who are wrestling, you know, with assurance, like, and, and you know, and they're looking to, well, I, I look at the things I do and they just don't measure up. And I'm like, well, you're looking in the wrong direction if you're looking for assurance. If you're looking at to the works of your own hands, <laughs> then you're looking in the wrong place. The assurance isn't on our righteousness, but on Christ's righteousness. And again, it's the idea, the, the more we grow in grace, the more we understand our need for that grace. Um, and it's the way, it's not just we need to have an understanding we're sinners in order to be saved. Like Paul is, like, in, in one sense, we kind of treat this as an... Um, as a model for evangelism, like, you know, you got to tell, show the person they're a sinner and establish their need in order so they can see um, that they really need uh, Christ. Paul is writing this to Christians. Like, remember, don't forget chapter one, he's, he's addressing it to those in Rome um, who are loved by God and called to be saints. And he's reminding them of the importance of understanding our sinfulness. Um, because our importance, the importance of understanding our sinfulness is a component of knowing the beauty and the glory of the righteousness that comes through faith, that puts every deed of human hands, you know, again, like Paul says, it, it's rubbish, it's trash, it's something to be Disposed of in comparison to the, the, to the gift that God has given us, um, this glorious gift 
of the righteousness that comes through faith. So if I've brought you low <laughs> over the last three weeks, talking about just how sinful and rotten you are, good. <laughs> but um, I, I'm not intending, you to, intending to leave you in what Bunyan called the slough of despond. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Paul wants us to come to this place where we say, I am unrighteousness, unrighteous. I am sinful. I, the work of my hands is no good. So then I can, can glory and rejoice in the gift of the righteousness of God given to us by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so um, he's given us a bit of the bad news, but come back next week and we'll get uh, a beautiful portrait of that, that good news that Paul has all along been building us, uh, you know, preparing us for. Um, so he's just been plowing the ground <laughs> for the last two chapters, um, you know, to, to make us uh, fertile recipients um, for this glorious truth he's going to present in the, the following chapters. So let me uh, close us in prayer. Gracious God, uh, we do confess that all too often um, we uh, presume upon your grace or we think that uh, because we um, are outwardly religious and we uh, go to Bible studies or we come to church that um, that exempts us from uh, concerns about our sin. Uh, truly, we forget that uh, uh, your glory when we do this because it's uh, your glory that uh, we're supposed to be seeking uh, not our, our not glorifying in ourselves um, and uh, we see that your righteousness is beautifully displayed um, when you judge uh, sin as well as when you save us from it and we do thank you uh, that you have saved us uh, from our sin um, by paying for it, making propitiation for it, as Paul will say, uh, on the cross, um, and then clothing us with this external righteousness um, of his perfect life so that we can uh, stand and live in your presence for eternity instead of being undone uh, by your glory, exposing our sinfulness. Um, Lord, truly... Um, this is a matter of uh, rejoicing, and it's a, a matter that should drive us to what we do in the coming hour and worship you. Help us, we pray, to worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.